Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Psalm 48, Psalm 48 is our sermon text. We, every first Sunday, our habit, our practice is to go through the Psalms in order. We are almost one-third of the way through the entire book of Psalms. Hard to believe. It seems like we just started it a year ago, and here we are at Psalm 48. Maybe we've been doing this for longer than I realized. Uh, But Psalm 48, uh, if I could ask you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of the God's Word this morning. Psalm number 48, a song, a a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together as soon as they saw it. They were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have seen, so, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God, our God, stands uh, forever. Well, we're, we're at a section of the Psalter. Uh, Psalms 46 to 48 are very closely linked together. Their themes, some of the phrases you see, or, or you might notice they're very similar. There's a lot of, of similarity between them. And I, Psalms, Psalms like this one, like Psalm 48, um, I think sometimes may seem a little bit difficult for you and I to identify with and to uh, appreciate. And the, the reason for that, I think uh, it's easy for us to read this kind of a psalm with all these references to Mount Zion and Zion and the city of our God and the city of the great king in the first uh, few verses and towards the end. Uh, the, the psalmist describes the various uh, defense structures, you know, citadels and ramparts and towers and you think of the walls of the city and that kind of a thing. And I think it's easy for us to read those things and hear those things and kind of scratch your head and say, you know, what, what does this have to do with us? Like, what am I supposed to learn uh, for building me up and instructing me in, in the faith from this description of, of a city that we don't live in? At least not, not at first blush, you know, because we, we don't live in the earthly city of Jerusalem, don't, do we? Maybe some of you have been there, you know, in your in your travels. Um, we, if you if you think about the wording of the psalm, none of us here have actually uh, seen those those heathen kings uh, put to flight and their armies put to flight at the sight of the walls and the defenses of of the city. You know, we we, we haven't even if you've been to Jerusalem on on some kind of a trip, and many of you maybe have, none of us here have seen the city of Jerusalem in all of its glory and its heyday. You may have seen the city, but you haven't. None of us can say we've seen the temple. 
It has not been around for almost 2,000 years since A.D. 70. We haven't seen the ramparts and the towers and the citadels the way they were in this day. And, you know, in our day, we don't, we don't often appreciate those kinds of things if we saw them. You know, if you go, if you go to Europe and you go to, on a tour of, of castles and things, they're kind of a, uh, a curiosity. You might be impressed by them, but you don't really think about I, sometimes what they're really meant to be. You know, we don't think of citadels, physical citadels, as our defense anymore. Whereas back a long time ago, if your city didn't have a wall, you wouldn't have a city very long. If you didn't have citadels, you weren't going to be kept safe for very long. So the, the way the psalmist wrote about the city in his day, we don't really have much of an appreciation or understanding uh, of that. Not only that, but towards the end of the psalm, what does he tell us to do? He tells us to walk about Zion. And the psalmist there in verse 12 says, To number her towers, consider well her ramparts, and go through her citadels. Well, how are we supposed to do that now? Even if we went there, it wouldn't be there for us to count or, or to consider or to think about. Now, if you think about it, the towers and ramparts and citadels and even the temple that's mentioned in this, this text of that earthly city of Jerusalem, uh, as the psalmist knew them, they don't exist anymore. They already said in A.D. 70, the Roman army under Titus, who would one day after that be the future emperor of Rome, destroyed the entire city and leveled the temple itself to the ground. You might know that in Matthew chapter 24, the Lord Jesus actually foretold that, was going, that that was going to happen. In Matthew 24, verses 1 to 2, it says this, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. It kind of almost sounds comical to us. You know, Jesus, look at this great building. And it says here, this is what he says, But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be here, uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Not one stone left on top of the other. This, this impressive structure with all these buildings that they were so impressed and taken back by, he tells them, not a single stone is going to be left on top of one another. This thing is not impregnable. This thing is not... The end-all, be-all. It's not an end in and of itself. doesn't really say what their reaction to his words must have been, but I imagine it must have been shock or disbelief or maybe, you know, as we're, we're going through the book of Mark on, on most Sundays and very often Jesus would teach and then Mark points out, I'll, I'll update the language, they didn't get it. They didn't understand and they had to ask him afterward, you know, what? It's one thing for the crowds to not get it, but the disciples often didn't get it. We imagine this is probably another one of those times when they heard what he said and thought, well, he couldn't have meant what I think he meant. He must have meant something else, and maybe we just don't, don't get it. But this psalm, as I hope that we're going to see this morning, has great relevance for us in the church today. For the city that we are to consider, although it's invisible to the naked eye these days, is in fact very much visible to the one who has the eye of faith to see it. May our faithful Savior Jesus Christ work in us by his Spirit to give us eyes to see what the Lord would have us to see about the city of our God. Now, this, the very fact that if you notice what, what name of the city is not mentioned in Psalm 48, and this is an argument from silence, he never once says Jerusalem, does he? Now, if he had, it wouldn't matter either way, but I think in some ways the fact that the psalmist doesn't mention Jerusalem by name, but rather calls it the city of God, the city of Zion, the city of, of the great king, I think that's a hint 
to us that we're not to be thinking of it as just the earthly city itself, that we are to be thinking of the city that's above, as the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, talks about Abraham looking for, quote, the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. There's a city that you and I are to look to, even as the psalm instructs us to look to, but that city is not an earthly city at all, but it's the city of God. So the first thing I'd like us to see this morning from the psalm in the first three verses of this psalm is the city, the praise for the city of God. Praise for the city of God and for God himself. The writer says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So what makes this city, Zion, the city of God, what makes this city so praiseworthy? At the end of the day, what, what was it about this city, even in the psalmist day, that made it so worthy of praise? Was it the greatest city ever on the face of the earth? Was it the mightiest city on the face of the earth? Not even in the psalmist day was that true, at least not in and of itself. What is it that made the city itself praiseworthy? It was not the city, not the city's natural defenses, not that it was on a hill. It was on a high hill. Was it on the highest hill? No. What made the city praiseworthy is that it was God's city. The fact that God had chosen himself to dwell there in some sense with his people there. That's what makes the city praiseworthy is that God himself was there and is there. These opening verses of the psalm, for all they have to say about the city itself, and it does say a lot about the city itself, it actually begins and ends not pointing you and I to the city itself, but to God himself. That's the way the the psalmist starts these first three verses. What does it say in verse 1? It starts off saying that the Lord is the one who is great, that the Lord is the one who is greatly to be praised. And then in verse 3, what does it say? Within her citadels, Think about the citadels being the defense. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. There's a fortress, but who's the real fortress? It's not the place at all. It's God himself. God himself is the ultimate fortress that makes that fortress effective for the protection of God's people at all. It's the fact that God watches over his people, that God defends and protects his people. That's the important part. And it says he's revealed himself to be a fortress there for his people. And we have to be careful not to confuse those two things. As important as the city itself is in this psalm, we don't want to confuse or place our faith in the city itself rather than in God himself as being our fortress. You might know, if you know your Old Testament, you might know that throughout Israel's history that has been, had been a great temptation to place your faith in the benefits, the blessings of God, the ordinances of God, the city of God, rather than in God himself. I'll give you a couple couple quick examples. In Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah 7 verses 1 through 4, it says there, "The the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. That's the temple. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. 
Do not trust in these deceptive words. Here's the deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What were the people being told? What were they trusting in as their, as their the, you know, the guarantee of their blessedness, the guarantee of their safety and prosperity? What was it they were trusting in? The Lord or the building? The Lord or his ordinances, his worship, his sacrifices that he himself had instituted? The deceptive words were the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And it's not, it's not an accident that God has Jeremiah go to the door of the temple, to the gate of the temple as they're coming in. He could have gone anywhere he wanted in the city, but God put him right there and said to them, don't trust in deceptive words that because the temple is here and you're going into the temple and going through the right motions, that that means everything is okay if they didn't amend their ways. Even the repetition is telling, isn't it? He could have just said, you know, don't trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. Three times. What, what were they doing? They were kind of treating the temple as kind of a, a rather large lucky rabbit's foot. That because they had, they had the temple, everything was okay as long as the temple was there. As long as the temple was in their midst, they were safe and sound. This is what they thought. No matter how they lived. If they went through the right motions, made the right sacrifices, everything would be fine. They, they kind of thought that they had God almost literally in a box, in a building. Even though when Solomon uh, commissioned the temple, what does he say there? He says, God does not dwell in houses made with hands. Nothing can contain God, not even this great temple that so impressed Christ's disciples. They thought that they could live however they please as long as they came to the temple went through the right motions and offered the prescribed God-ordained sacrifices. But that was not the case, was it? God warned them, don't put your trust in these things, these outward things. Trust in him alone. Another such example comes from the life of King David, the very last thing that's spoken of in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's kind of the last thing, it's, it's basically the last thing you really read of in the, in the, in the reign of David. And it's, it's kind of a sad note there. What, what do you read of there? You read of the census and David numbering Israel and Judah. Now, the reason for that census becomes clear in, in chapter 24, verse 9. It says this, And Joab gave, gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. This wasn't just any old census. You know, in our day, if, if they say, you know, if the government wants to count something, it's because they want to tax it or outlaw it. Well, taxes may have had something to do with it here. But what, what, is, what is Joab, uh, what does he mention? What, what does he, uh, how does he describe the people he counted? These were people who drew the, valiant men who drew the sword. He's numbering his army. He's not just numbering noses. He wants to know how many guys he has who are valiant men who can fight. How strong am I? And where, where was he measuring his strength? In, in human beings, in, in soldiers. He was placing his confidence and faith in his own assets, his own numbers. Now, we might be tempted to think kind of lightly of that sin. You know, we think a census of all the things that God could judge and send chastisement and affliction upon, 
his people for. A census doesn't seem like a very big, big thing. But David knew better. We read in, in verse 10, it says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I had done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. We would probably account that sin rather small. It doesn't seem outwardly wicked. Joab knew, didn't he? If you read that account, Joab tried to stop him. So it was pretty obvious what he was, what he was doing wrong. So David knew he had sinned wickedly. He, he looked to the Lord for mercy. And what did God do? Now God, as he always does with his people, he forgave David's iniquity. But what did he do? He still chastised him. They almost need a, a, a harder word than that. He afflicted not only David, but the people. And he gave, he gave David a choice of his own chastisement. Now, if your parents ever did that, would you rather be grounded or get the belt? Would you rather, you know, pick, pick your poison? And none of them, you know, there was never an easy one, which we would always would have picked. Well, he gave David three choices. He said you could have three years of famine in the land. People would probably die from that. Not having enough food, that wasn't a joke. Three years of famine, three months of him fleeing from before his enemies in battle, or three days of pestilence or plague upon the land. None of those choices were good. In all those choices, someone was going to die. Maybe many people were going to die. Well, David cast his, himself and his people on the mercy of the Lord, saying in verse 14, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. He couldn't bear to fall into the hand of the wicked, even in battle. And so what happened? The text tells us that the Lord sent a pestilence or a plague, and 70,000 men died. 70,000 died because of that census. In verse 15, it says that 70,000 men died, quote, from Dan to Beersheba. That's the exact same phrase used in verse 2 from David, saying, you know, count the men from Dan to Beersheba. Count the men, count the soldiers, and how many, who died? 70,000 men from Dan to Beersheba. So the Lord made the, made the punishment, the chastisement, fit the crime, fit the sin. David was trusting in numbers, and so what did the Lord do? He took away quite a few of those, of those numbers. He, show, he showed David not only affliction for his sin, but he showed him how un, unsustainable those things are. How un, You can't count on those things. You can't put your trust in those uncertain things, even, even numbers of, of people. Verse 16 there, it says that when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, God was going to destroy his city. It says, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruanah, the Jebusite. And so what did David do? David bought that threshing floor. And there are some that believe that that threshing floor became the, the site uh, where the temple was eventually built. And so I say this morning from our, from our text and from that text, are you trusting in something other than the Lord in your life? Are you putting your confidence in other things, even good things? Soldiers weren't a bad thing, right? It wasn't a bad thing to have all those men that were able to fight. It's not bad to have resources, 
But are we, as, a, as individuals and as a church, we must never put our confidence in our numbers. We shouldn't put our trust in our own resources, even our God-given resources, even our God-given gifts and abilities that we see, as if those things were the measure of what God is able to do in our midst, or as if the word of God, the gospel of Christ, were somehow either hindered or helped by them. Well, the second thing I want to see in our text is in verses 4 through 8, and it's praise for the protection of God, even the providence of God. It says, it says there in the first three verses that God made himself known as a fortress. Well, how? How had God made himself known as a fortress for his people? Verses 4 through 8 tell us at least a part of that. It says this, For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they saw the city. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, as anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have seen, so we have, as we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Now, the reason, I think, part, at least in part, where it says the Lord of hosts, that's a military picture. It's the, it's the Lord that commands armies, unseen armies, not the kind of armies that David was sinful in counting, but armies of angels, that God and his armies was the one that was defending the city. And so when the kings assembled and came together, they saw it. Notice that the, the word for see is, is there twice. You have two groups of people seeing something. You have these wicked kings, these pagan kings, seeing God's city and, and being astounded and being put to flight. They were those who were seeing the city from the outside. But what does it say later on? It says, as we, those inside, as we have heard, so we have seen. It's an entirely different view of the city from the outside as it is from the inside. And that language of kings assembling together, it brings to mind Psalm number 2, where in verses 2 to 3 it says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, or against his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. If you know the psalm, what was God's reaction? He laughs. The Lord laughs at that. All the might, all the assembled might of every nation on this earth that would array itself against the Lord and against his Christ is nothing to the Lord. He laughs at their attempt at rebellion. Was we saw those wicked kings when they saw Zion, they were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight, they ran away. They trembled there in anguish, they experienced anguish as of a woman in labor. Uh, that's, that's not demeaning a woman in labor. What it means is, you, you know, if, if you have children and grandchildren, you know, you know how that works. You know, nine months or however long it goes, and everything is going along and going along, and all of a sudden, bam. And there's, there's no turning back from it. The, the baby's coming out. The, there's pain involved. There's that. Um, that's, that's the picture of these wicked kings. They might have thought everything was fine. They might have thought they were doing just fine. They were about to conquer the people of God. And then God sent them fleeing and says he shattered their ships by an east wind. Now what, what deliverance is the psalmist here talking about? It doesn't really say specifically. Very often the psalms will tell you a certain historical situation uh, that it was based upon. Sometimes it doesn't. I think there are hints in our text and in the previous psalm. Psalm 46 very often is thought to point back 
to the days of Isaiah where God delivered his people from the, the armies of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who had come and built a siege against Jerusalem itself and mocked the Lord and mocked God's people and said, you know, all those other people, all those other towns and cities and kings and nations, you know, their gods didn't save them, so why do you think yours is going to save you? And what did, what did Hezekiah do? took that letter and laid it before the Lord in the temple and God, God delivered his people almost really without them lifting a finger. He caused those, pe- those armies to fight themselves and the king literally went away in terror and was killed by his own son. Psalm 47, the previous psalm to this, points to the conquest of Canaan, that God gave them victory over peoples that were much larger than themselves and allotted their inheritance to them. Some believe that Psalm 48 has a particular reference to the Lord delivering his people from in Jerusalem from the Moabites and Ammonites, as is told in 2 Chronicles chapter, chapter 20. Just like the, the deliverance from, from Sennacherib, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, in this case, did, did similar. He cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And what did God do? God had the, those pagan armies kill each other off. He sent confusion among them, and they did most of the work. It says in verse 23, they all helped to destroy each other. It's funny how God has a habit of doing that with his, with his enemies. They bring their own destruction upon their own heads in defending his own people. Well, not only that, but like it says here in our psalm, verse 29 of Second Chronicles 20 mentions that the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of those pagan nations as they were being routed by the Lord. And verse 37, verse 37 rather says that ships were, quote, wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. The ships of Tarshish, our psalm says, were shattered by God sending that, that east wind. Well, Psalm 8, it says, it says this, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish there. What, what's the psalmist saying? He's saying, you know, in the past, we heard about, things were passed down to us, the past acts of God's deliverance of his people. We heard all the stories. Maybe they, they heard the stories that were in Scripture up until that time, but what's he saying now? I've heard about God's deliverance. Now we have seen it. And we've seen it to be just like we heard it to be so, that God defends his people. They now had their own testimony to pass on to the next generation about the power and faithfulness of their God in defending his people. William Plummer writes this. He says, History and experience are two great teachers. History and experience are two great teachers. It's one thing to hear about it. And Lord willing, every, every Lord's Day, every time you read your Bible, you're, you're reminding yourself of God's past acts of deliverance, both in the Old and the New Testament. The, the history of God's acts of deliverance is not just an Old Testament thing by any stretch of the imagination. Well, what may you and I both learn from history and our own experience watching God defend his people, defend his church. And that brings us to the last thing in our psalm, I think, and that's praise for the steadfast love of God in protecting his people. Verses 9 through 11, he says, We have thought, this is the next thing he thinks of, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, your covenant love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. 
you know, what's, what's the most reasonable response to the, to the steadfast love of God in protecting his people? It's praise. It's very often the Psalms, as we're going through the Psalms, the, the application, so to speak, it doesn't sound like much in our eyes, but it's praise. It's praising our God for his love in Christ. Praise should be the natural result of meditating and thinking about God's steadfast love in watching over his people. And where is it that they meditated upon the steadfast love of God and praised him? In the midst of your, verse 9, temple. It's not an accident. Just like it wasn't an accident for God to put Jeremiah at the, at the gate of the temple when they thought of God's steadfast love. Where did their mind go? Naturally to the temple. Not the walls, not the citadels, not the towers. None of those things were the first and foremost, the thing that made them think of God's steadfast love. It was the temple. The temple was a place of sacrifice, of the atonement for sin. The only real reason that they could be the people of God in the first place. The only real reason that we can be the people of God and be having him as our protection in the first place. Without atonement for sin, there can be no city of God, no place for God to dwell safely with his people. Because of the steadfast love of God for us in Christ, he has provided atonement for our sins through the death and resurrection of his son, who himself is the one the temple pointed to. The temple is a picture of Christ. The priesthood is a picture of Christ. The sacrifices are a picture of Christ. Everything about the city and about the temple is a picture primarily pointing to Christ. Those things were types and shadows. The city that, were, that we think of, the earthly city, is, was a type and a shadow of the one that was to come, the greater city built without hands. And the psalm closes with verses 12 to 14. It says, Walk about Zion. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. We, we're being instructed by the psalmist. We, us too, not just the people that were there when the, when the city was the way that it was in his day. We are being told to walk about Zion too. To take a tour, to number her towers, to consider her ramparts and go through her citadels. And why? So that we can tell the next generation of the glory and power of our God forever and ever who will, quote, guide us forever. That last phrase in verse 14 uh, it can also be translated, who will guide us even unto death. To the end of our days, God guides and protects us. That's really the picture being painted here. What, now, we don't have towers and ramparts and citadels, do we? Not physical ones. Not, those aren't the things that we're to look at anyway. But what are they? What towers are you and I to look at? What are the citadels and ramparts that you and I are to take a tour of and think about and meditate upon and praise God for? Think of a few things. The promises of God in Scripture, all of which find their yes and amen in whom? Christ. God's promises. Those are some of the towers, the ramparts, and citadels that we are to look at. The accounts in Scripture of the history of God's faithfulness in protecting his people. His faithfulness to his promises to his people. Even our own experiences of the faithfulness of God in our lives. In other words, the providence of God. Not just the promises of God, although that's, that's the big thing. The, the providence of God. We, we should have, as Presbyterians anyway, we should have a very strong view and not just an old kind of a historical view of God's providence. 
You can see God's providence in the scripture, in the accounts of scripture, where God made all things work together for his people's good, where God governed and sustained his creation, especially his people. But in your own life, you can probably think, if you've been a believer for any length of time, I'm sure that you can look back and see the ways that God has taken care of you, that way that God has defended you, has worked in your family, provided for you when you didn't think you could be provided for. Those, those are also the towers and the bulwarks and the ramparts that we should look to and think about God's faithfulness and power and defending us and providing for us. And the last thing is, and this is what you think of when you think of the temple, there's plenty more that you can think of of this, the presence of God, which is also part of the promise of God, isn't it? The end of, of the Great Commission, Christ himself says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is with his people. He is with us. He is with his church to gather and defend us even, even now, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. God's presence doesn't mean enemies don't come. And the history of Israel, the history of Jerusalem should be one major proof of that. Enemies come, but God still is able to defend and is willing to do that. We should be like Abraham, that Hebrew says, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He dwelt in the land so-called that was promised to him as a, as a sojourner, as a pilgrim, as if he was camping. And later on in the book of Hebrews, it says uh, here, Hebrews 13, 14, for here in this, on this earth, in this life, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Our home is not ultimately this, but we do have a city. We do have a lasting city. We have a city that is to come. And that city is eternal and lasting. And it's spoken of towards the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, 1 through 4, where it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That heavenly city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem is the place of God dwelling perfectly among his people, where we will be his people and he'll be with us as our God, and in such a way that the earthly city of Jerusalem, even at the height of its glory, was only but a shadow of what was to come. If we could go in a time machine or something and go to the, the greatest moment of Israel's earthly glory, probably under the reign of Solomon, and could see the temple, I mean, even, the, even the temple of Herod, Remember the disciples looking at Jesus and saying, look at this. And what did Jesus say? He basically said, this is nothing. In fact, all these stones, they're going to be knocked down. But there is one that's to come. It was the glory of which surpasses all, all of that. Martin Luther wrote of this psalm, Psalm 48, he wrote, We sing this psalm because God is pleased to preserve his church and his gospel against the roaring and hatred of kings and princes who cease not from attacking them in violence and craft with all their might, and yet they shall perish and be confounded and covered with shame. 
while the gospel shall remain as it was before, unhurt and unhindered. If you know your history of Martin Luther at all, you'll know that those words weren't, they weren't allegorical for him. They weren't exaggerations for him. He knew what it was like for kings, literal kings and princesses to, princes to be trying to stomp out the gospel and kill those who tried to proclaim it. And he, he looked at Psalm 48, according to his own words, as God preserving his church and his gospel and always being faithful to do exactly that and even remaining unhurt and unhindered. So I have to ask this morning, are, are, you, are you in Christ by faith? Is God, is God your refuge? Is your citizenship in heaven? Are you looking forward to dwelling in that holy city with God forever? It's only one way to have that be the case. The only way your heavenly passport, so to speak, gets stamped is by, by union with Christ, by faith in him. If you're in Christ you will one day be in that city and your name will be registered in God's book of life. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you are great and greatly to be praised and that we have no, no lasting earthly city in this life to look at. We don't have towers and ramparts and, and uh, citadels uh, physically to look at, but you have given us far, far greater than that that uh, we, we are in, in your church, we are in your, the city of God even now, and that uh, you are still even now our defender, wherever your church is, wherever your church is gathered, wherever your gospel is proclaimed. You are there among us. You are there always among your people, even to the end of the age. You are there to gather and defend your church against all, all her enemies and yours, and we give you praise for that, that all through the years, all through the centuries and millennia, that you have been faithful to do just that, that even your son, our Lord, says that he is building his church and the gates of hell can never hope to prevail against them. And we ask that you would be pleased to continue to do that, that you work among us, work in this, this particular church and others where your word is, is held to in sincerity and truth, where your gospel is proclaimed. Uh, build your church, glorify your name, and give us each eyes to see uh, the city that is to come, that we might look to it, and look forward to our, our living with you forever in heaven in the new Jerusalem where every tear will be wiped away, where death and pain and mourning will be no more. We look forward to that day when we get to dwell with you, when our, our faith shall become sight. And we thank you that you, in all of your glory and power, by your mercy, that you, you are pleased because of your son dying and rising from the dead for our salvation, that you are pleased to dwell with us who have no, no right, no reason of our own that you might want to dwell with us, but because of your mercy and grace, you're pleased to dwell with men, and one day we'll share in your glory, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.